Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Hey, I want to show you this. This is Anna Tench. She's not a person, obviously. She's a piece of cross-stitch. There you go. Um, My mother-in-law stitched Anna when our daughter was born. And it's called Anna Tench because there's a real-life Anna Tench, but she lived like 200 years ago in the 19th century in England. And she stitched this. This was like her school homework. I'm just going to put it down here because it's heavy. Um, She stitched it. She Actually, no, I need to read it. She stitched it and she finished her stitching on March the 13th, 1819. She just put it there. And she was 11 years old. Isn't that wild? Um, I wanted to show you this because I wanted to get us thinking about what endures and what lasts and how we leave our legacy. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Ross. <laughs> I really should have thought of that. Um, Anna's stitching has lasted. Her actual stitches, the threads that touched her hands, have lasted, which is wild. Um, not here in this frame. Matt's mother, um, my mother-in-law who stitched it, has the original. One of the things she does is she gets these beautiful historical artifacts and she charts them like on little tiny grid paper and then recreates them and then sells the patterns with her friends. So Anna, her stitches exist in this house in Katoomba and then we've got the reproduction here. And if you really want... You can reproduce Anna's work yourself. The samples are available at handsacrossthesea.com. Um, this, you know, Anna's name has lasted. But it's a bit random that Anna's name has, lasted, has lasted because for every Anna, there's like a hundred thousands of other school children going through England at the same time making these beautiful samplers whose names did not last. We don't know who they were. And for every Anna that existed, there were thousands more children who didn't even get to go to school, whose names were forgotten even probably before they had passed away, whose legacies did not get caught up in history in this way. And so this question of whose names get remembered, how a legacy lasts, it really does feel like a matter of chance. How does your name endure? Is it just chance? Well, today we are finally at the end of Paul's letters to the Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, and Paul's final word to the Roman Christians is about endurance, and he knows that endurance is not a matter of chance. Paul knows that there is a sure way for these Romans, for their names to last, not just their names, but their faith, their legacy, and their very existence. Paul wants these people to endure. He wants them to last, and he writes this final chapter, this final word to them, to encourage his listeners to stand firm. That's what we're thinking about this morning. What lasts? How will we endure? Now, first up, we're going to recap what Paul says in this chapter. Um, If you have your Bibles on your pews, it could be useful to keep it open so you can refer to the text. Um, There's a lot. We're looking through the whole chapter of 16, and so there's a lot there. It's on page 921, I think. Um, Paul writes this whole chapter, and he actually jumps backwards and forwards a lot as he ties up lots of loose threads in his letter. And Paul's writing here is not like methodical cross-stitching like this where it's all neat. It's far more like a weaver who's weaving all of these loose threads backwards and forwards with the shuttle trying to tie everything together. 
And so he's going this way, he's saying hi to these people, but he's also over here saying hi from these people, and he's writing advice to the Christians about how to live, and he's shuttling back this way, praising God for all the things he's done. It goes backwards and forwards all over the place, and it can be hard to follow, but by the end of it, it comes together into this beautiful tapestry, all about enduring as a follower of Jesus. Now, Paul has likely written this letter while he was staying with the church in Corinth, and so he begins this section by introducing and commending someone who's bringing the letter from Corinth to Rome for him, and that person is Phoebe. It's the very first thing he writes. He writes to commend Phoebe, who is a generous, gospel-hearted deacon of the church in Kencray, and that was the port town just outside of Corinth. Now, Phoebe is a stranger to the Roman community, but she is a noble woman, and Paul wants the Romans to trust her and welcome her and honor her in their church. That's the first thing he, oh, sorry, that's the first thing he does. And then he shuttles back in the other direction and starts saying hi to all the people that he knows in Rome. Now, Paul has never been to Rome, which is wild because he knows a lot of people there. He greets at least 24 brothers and sisters in faith by name, 26 if you count Rufus's mum and Nereus's sister. And most of the people he is greeting are people who are leading the church, sharing the gospel, working in the Lord, whatever he means by that, and overseeing congregations. So there's 26 people, but then also five church congregations mentioned in the letter too. This is a very diverse group of people. There are at least eight Jewish names or people who are Jews. There are people who have Greek names. There are people who have Latin names. There are people who are named after pagan gods. There's even someone called Persis, whose name literally means Persian lady. I'm assuming that's not the name her mom gave her, maybe like her expat nickname or something like that. There are five people, uh, including Persis, no, more than five, maybe six or seven, including Persis, who have common Roman slave names. There are nine people who are women. There are 12 people who he commends for working hard in the Lord, and interestingly, those nine women and the 12 people who commends are almost entirely overlapping lists. Nearly all of the people he commends as church workers are the women. Paul keeps, like he wraps that section up, he said hi to everyone he wants to say, and then he keeps weaving backwards and forwards, so he shuttles from those names into a list of exhortations about uh, warning the church around who to trust, and what teaching to listen to, and then he shuttles back to names again. It's not just Phoebe who will greet them from Corinth, but there's a whole gang of people at Corinth that want to say hi, and then he shuttles back again in the other direction, and he draws all the threads of the letter together with one last shuttle to praise the Lord. He's overthrowing with thanks and awe to the point where he kind of forgets regular grammar, and he just piles statements on top of statements and praises, and it wonder and it all overflows, it's very hard to follow, which maybe verses 25 to 27 are an appropriate way for Paul to wrap up this letter, which for us has been a convoluted journey, a theologically rich journey, and has taken us as a church years to preach through this whole letter that Paul has written. That's my speed fly through the whole chapter. Names and encouragement and praise, it's all over the place, and all of this weaving and backwards, weaving backwards and forwards, leaves us with this message about endurance in the Lord. Now, we know both from this letter and from other ancient sources about the church in Rome and the conditions that they lived in, 
We know that these 26 people and their five congregations needed a lot of encouragement to endure. We know from the letter itself that they were caught up in complicated internal quarrels about these theological issues that were undermining their faith and community. We know, both from the letter and from history itself, that they were living on the cusp of huge social and political upheaval. We know that they were feeding and housing and building up the weakest members of society that weren't even allowed to participate in the Roman society, but were honored in the church. And we also know that if these people's faith encroached too much into the public sphere, if it offended too much the emperor and his court, then they risked public execution. They needed encouragement to endure in their faith. And this is true for us too. I mean, not the public execution bit. I just want to be very clear. In the inner west, we are not remotely at risk of public execution for our faith. But the other things are true for us. We still also feed and house and build up marginalized people at cost to us. We still also live on the cusp of huge social and political change, and we still also get caught up in complicated quarreling about weighty theological issues that distract us from what is true. Following Jesus costs us something today. We also need this encouragement to endure. Now this whole chapter, this whole word about endurance, so the whole chapter is about endurance, but Paul's picture of what it means to endure really crystallizes in verses 19 and 20. It says, for while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I want you to be wise in what is good and guileless in what is evil. The God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, there are two verses here. There's a sentence about obedience and a sentence about crushing Satan. These are the two verses we're going to tackle the most today. So this, I want your Bibles open so you can see these two verses in front of you. We're going to spend most of our time this morning reading these. So have a look at them. If you're taking notes, this is what you should write down, those verses. Um, this is what you should be reading. We're going to dig down into verses 19 and 20. Now in verse 19, Paul is proud of the Roman church's obedience. He rejoices over them. They do what Jesus commands. And the way that they follow Jesus is so encouraging that they have an international reputation for listening to God and obeying him. But Paul also cautions them because he knows that obedience is not necessarily the same thing as endurance. John Stott puts it really clearly. He says this, there are two kinds of obedience. There's blind obedience and there's discerning obedience. And Paul longs for the Romans to develop the latter, to develop discerning obedience. What does he mean by those two categories, blind obedience and discerning obedience? Well, blind obedience, that's following orders without ever asking any questions saying yes to anything. You say jump, I say, how high? Or you know that, like, would you jump off the harbour bridge if that person really asked you to? The answer is yes, yes, I would do that. I would definitely go with them. And blind obedience is crazy, right? It's not a great way to make decisions. It's not a sustainable way to exist. I mean, as an aside, of course, 
you should concede that there are periods and seasons when blind obedience is exactly what's needed. So my toddler really likes buses, and he really likes garbage trucks, and any time he sees them, he just likes to run towards them. Now, he is two years old, and he's not into critical thinking or discernment. He just goes. And so right now, all I want from him is blind obedience, right? That's, that's good. I want him to hold my hand. Don't run on the road. Stop at the lights. Look both ways. Look both ways again. There's even a song, right? Like we're just drilling it. It's drills. Blind obedience from Tom. And there are, there are again, I can see it also seasons as adults when blind obedience is the right thing to do. And that's often when we're in crisis or when we're in a very complicated situation and it is far better and healthier in that moment to just obey the trusted authority. So when we're admitted to hospital with psychosis or with a traumatic injury, we obey the medical staff who attend us. Or when we go to the ballot box with the whole country at one time and the electoral worker says, this is how you number the boxes, we listen to them and we number the boxes that way. We just do it. Or when a novel respiratory virus just turns up and spreads around the world really fast and no one knows how it's behaving or how dangerous it is, we obey our governments when they say, wear masks and stay home. But also those examples show us the limits of blind obedience. Blind obedience really only works in the short term and only when we trust who we're obeying. When that moment of intensity passes, when the crisis is over, we are able to slow down and discern why it's worth obeying. Is the authority that we're listening to really worth trusting? Why did we lock down? Why do we have preferential voting? Why did my doctor prescribe that treatment? Was it right? How do I find out more information? What will be the right thing to do next time this happens? See, these are the kinds of questions that help us discern why we obey. This is discerning obedience. We're working out whether it's right to keep obeying. We're trying to work out our motivations for why we obey. This is the discernment that comes from wisdom, sorry, an obedience that comes from wisdom, an obedience that springs out of thoughtful and considered trust. So blind obedience, that's not a state that we can live in forever. Paul wants God's people to have discerning obedience. He wants them to be wise in what is good and guileless in what is evil. He wants God's people to know why we say yes to good things and why we say no to evil things. He wants God's people to know why we listen to God at all. Why is he worth trusting? Why is his command worth obeying? That kind of obedience, that kind of discerning obedience, that's what we need to endure. Endurance is not about blind obedience, it's about discerning. It's about knowing who God is and why we can trust him. And that brings us to verse 20. This is all about who God is. He is the God of peace who will shortly crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If Paul wants us to develop discerning obedience to know who we follow, 
Verse 20 gives us the window into who God is and why he is trustworthy and why it is good to obey him. I mean, first up, right up top in the verse, he's the God of peace. That's good. Cool. God of peace. We got that. Let's park that. We'll keep going because there's a lot more in the verse to flesh out. This God of peace will shortly crush Satan. Yeah, so peaceful (laughs) under our feet. What we're going to do with that, hey, yeah. The God of peace will surely crush Satan under your feet. Satan is here in the verse. He's the representative of all the forces of evil. And so even though those two things kind of don't feel like they match together, they really do, because for God to truly be a God of peace, he really does have to crush evil to get rid of it completely. Evil is the problem behind and underneath and above all of our problems. Evil is the reason that we need to endure in the first place. It's, it's the thing that we struggle through. It's the threat to our existence. We are impacted by evil in every corner of our lives. We inflict evil on other people in every corner of our lives. Evil is what we are stuck in. Evil is what we're trying to escape. And in verse 20, Paul reminds his readers that the God of peace is opposed to evil. It doesn't belong in his world and he is going to destroy it. I mean, it's very encouraging to know about God, that that's, you know, his perspective, that's his focus and purpose, he's going to remove evil. But there's even more going on in verse 20, we're only scratching the surface, because Paul isn't just looking ahead at this point and telling us about something God is promising to do in the future. He's also alluding to something in the past, he's alluding to something that God has already done. And this whole idea of like crushing the Satan, that actually goes way back in the scriptures to the very, very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3. At the moment when humanity enters the, opens the door for evil to enter into the world in the first place, the moment that Satan you know, tricks, deceives, lures, whatever he's doing, tempts the humans to open that door, God tells the Satan that, yes, even though he has successfully struck at the heel of the humans and made everything awful and messed up everyone's lives, God makes a serious promise at that point that one day he will crush the Satan's head. One day the humans actually would crush the Satan's head and evil would come to an end. This is an awkward promise for God to fulfill, though. Because the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every human being. And so who in the world, which human, is the person who can crush evil without needing to also be crushed themselves? Generation after generation of humanity has seen every person abusing power when they get it and acting out of the limits of their own self-interest. We are all very, very good at crushing, myself included just not the right things. We're good at crushing the other, crushing other people, crushing the marginalized, crushing people who are different to us, even sometimes crushing down our own spirits. But we have been useless at crushing the actual problem of evil itself. Whenever we do crush anything, we don't crush evil, we don't exterminate evil, we end up just multiplying the evil and then passing the problem on to the next people and the next generation. There's one exception. 
there's one person who has never crushed other people in that way. One person who's never been tainted by evil, who's never been malicious or jealous, never used their power to abuse another person, and that is Jesus. Jesus who is wise in what is good and guileless in what is evil. He is the one who can crush Satan under his feet. And the irony of the whole situation is when Jesus turned up, he didn't crush Satan. He wasn't a crusher. I mean, like, not in, like, not in the classic way we imagine crushing to happen. Jesus didn't show off how strong his crushing power was. He didn't flaunt his power. He didn't smite evil or snuff it out by force. When Jesus turned up, he completely flipped the script of what it meant to crush something. Instead of going after evil with brute force, he invited evil to unload all of its force onto him. He invited evil to expend all its energy into crushing him. And that's what happened right on the day Jesus died. Jesus was isolated and humiliated and minimized. He was crushed as though he was the Satan, as though he was the vilest person in the world. He submitted to evil until it killed him. And then three days later, he rose out the other side of the experience. I mean, this is all back to front. The way that Jesus crushed the power of Satan was by letting Satan try to crush him. And amazingly, Jesus shows us that in that moment of weakness, Jesus is stronger than the worst, most violent excesses of evil. He is stronger than death. He is stronger than everything that crushes us self-interested power, stronger than diseases, stronger even than that quiet self-interest that works in our hearts that tempts us to crush other people. He's even stronger than that. This is all there in the background of verse 20. Paul is evoking this cosmic story. When he talks about crushing Satan, he's evoking this story of evil entering God's world the story of God's pledge to remove evil from the world, this story that demonstrates God ca God's character, this story that demonstrates why God is trustworthy, why it's good to obey him through hard times. This is a story of God being faithful to a promise that he made at the beginning of time. He was faithful to it over thousands and thousands of years. He fulfilled that promise. It's a story about how God keeps promises. He fulfilled this promise through his son, the Prince of Peace, who actually crushed evil by letting it crush him. This is a story of his son who is still alive, still extending grace to his people, and who is shortly coming to finally do away with evil, to finish crushing Satan under the feet of his people. Paul wants to remind us of this story because we need to obey God through difficult times, through hard times that are tainted by evil, hard times where we might face death, hard times where we might face great loss. And we can obey Christ through these difficult seasons because God proves that he keeps his promises. And Jesus has proven that he is stronger than evil. And we can trust God that one day our hardships will end permanently.
And we know that because Jesus has overcome evil. He has shared his grace with us. He is with us. Verses 19 and 20 are an encouragement to stick with God, to endure, to obey him, because he is trustworthy. And enduring with God means that one day we will be with Christ when the Satan is crushed finally under his feet. It won't just be our names enduring in a cross stitch or being written down in a letter. We will have overcome death with Jesus. That's like next level endurance. Now that's our deep dive into those two verses. We're nearly at the end of the sermon, nearly at the end of the sermon series in Romans. Guys, it's wild. And so to tie up the loose threads and to wrap this all up, the very, very last goodness we're going to glean out of Romans are two practical tips that Paul has given here to help us cultivate this kind of enduring, discerning obedience. Two things. The first thing is our community matters. Now, in chapter 16, Paul describes two different Christian communities. You can see them there. The first one is his description of the Roman church. The second one is his description of a church influenced by dodgy teachers. You can see those two pictures there on this, like, verse, I think one starts in verse 3, another one starts in verse 15. I don't know. Matt's like, no, I'm not getting anything. I can't remember, I don't have my Bible up. 17, I was so close. So in Rome, there's this vibrant, spirit-filled community, and God's work is being done everywhere, according to the people that he has gifted. His work is being done by slaves and free people side by side. It's being done by men and women side by side. It's being done by Jews and Gentiles side by side. There are all these different people working together to proclaim God's message, to build each other up. Even the kind of work that's commended is diverse. There are people who have literally like risked their lives or been in prison. There are people who are commended because like Rufus's mum for being like nurturing and building people like, like mothers and adopting people in. All kinds of work being honored, all kinds of people doing the work. They are unified together in their diversity. And we know also from previous chapters that it's not a neat community. They've been fighting a lot. There's a lot of mess in this community. But still, they greet each other with holy kisses they treasure God's word together, and despite their differences and their mess, they work through it and they care for each other. They are working hard for the gospel, and God's word flourishes in communities like these. I mean, like, it's the Church of Rome. We know they got, a lot of them got executed. They like, it was hard for them, and yet there's still a church in Rome. Like, there are Christians in Rome. There are Christians everywhere because these guys endured. Like, it was a, this good church. On the other hand, we have the warning in verses 17 and 18, Paul urging his readers not to fall victim to people who preach a false gospel. Because teachers like this do something bad to the community. They divide the people. They oppose what God teaches. They use smooth talk and flattery to teach whatever is most appetizing and easy to digest. Now, some of us don't have to think very hard of communities like this, where the teaching is tightly controlled by one voice and that voice is not held accountable to the gospel. Maybe you might know of communities where people are only taught what they want to hear and are deceived into believing half-truths about who God is or what he has done. 
Maybe you know communities like this where people are divided and isolated from each other. This is the wrong kind of messy community. These are communities that have an outward veneer of peace, but deep hurt and division below the surface. Avoid leaders like these, Paul says. And this is because community matters. We thrive, we endure when we are in communities where we serve each other and we minister to each other in our diversity, where we all get to contribute with the gifts that God has given to us. Our community matters. That's the first thing. The second and final practical tip is that God, God's word matters. This is the very, very last thing that Paul wants his readers to hear in verses 25 and 27. Please have a look at it with me. It's very hard to explain if you're not looking at it because it's a weird-ass sentence. This is the overflowing, not super grammatically coherent. <laughs> Praise to God. God who is able to strengthen us, literally to stabilize us, to hold us firm, to help us endure. God is the one who strengthens us. And in these verses, Paul says he strengthens us according, us to, according to three things. They're according to, firstly, Paul's gospel and the proclamation of Jesus. Strength one. Strength two, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but is now disclosed and through the prophetic not, not the writings has made known to all the Gentiles. This is a very long sentence. But the revelation of this mystery. And then three, according to the command of the eternal God. This is just three different ways of talking about God's word, right? According to the gospel about Jesus that Paul is preaching. According to the revelation of this mystery, which is talking about God's plans and purposes, which historically were only shared with the people of Israel, but now have been disclosed to the whole world. So it's, you know, all of the prophecies and writings about God. And then three, according to God's command, according to his law. This is every facet of God's word to us. The law, the prophets and the writings, the good news of Jesus Christ. Why does God want to strengthen us according to his word? See the end of verse 26. To bring about what? The obedience of faith. Discerning, trusting obedience to God. God's word matters. God's community matters. If we want to endure in our faith, we should soak our lives in God's word and share it with one another. We don't need to wait until we see each other at gospel community to have a structured, ordered conversation about God's word together. It should be on our lips all the time. Anytime we see a brother or sister in Christ, we ask each other about what we've been learning in God's word. We get excited to share about how God's word is changing us. We can be, and I pray maybe we already are, a Romans 16 kind of community with men and women, citizens and expats, employed and unemployed, all kinds of gifts, all kinds of perspective, all kinds of life experience. I we can be this kind of community that gives God's word a regular place in our regular conversations, as well as in all of the other ways that we formally minister to each other. Let the spirit of God minister his word to each other through us, wherever we are talking together. This is how we endure. God's word in God's community. We don't endure because we are blindly obedient we endure through God's word 
and among his people as he grows us in wisdom and shows us that he is trustworthy. And he strengthens us to stand, not just to stand, but to stand with the resurrected, Satan-crushing Jesus. And in Jesus, we will endure in the fullest sense, not just as names recorded in an ancient letter or stitched into a cross-stitch or written down on a tombstone, but we will endure in the fullness of who God is forming us to be, obeying Jesus in all wisdom and enduring through the darkest evil that we might face into eternity. Please praise the Lord with me. God of peace, who crushes Satan, you promise us in the letter from James that you give wisdom generously and ungrudgingly to anyone who asks, so we ask you now, Lord God, make us wise in what is good and guileless in what is evil. Lord, make us a people with your word always on our lips. Bring about in us the obedience of faith, to you, the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever and ever. Amen.